God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our gospel reading this morning, John writes, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. A few verses before, Jesus had dismissed Judas to go betray him to the Jewish leadership that they might hand him over to the Roman government to execute him. Jesus knows that his time has finally come, and so he declares that he will be glorified right now, and that his Father will be glorified in him. According to Jesus, the shame and the rejection and the hatred that he would experience would in fact glorify him and his Father. Jesus continues, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus had indeed told the Jews in John 8 that where he was going, they could not come. And they wondered about this, and he said, is he going to kill himself? Is this why he says where he's going, we cannot come? And Jesus was indeed speaking of his cross as he would go on to tell them, you will know that I am he when you see the Son of Man lifted up. Jesus knew that he had come to suffer for the sins of the world, but he also knew that through this suffering he would be glorified because through his suffering he would make us kings and priests. In the cross of Jesus, we see the love and the justice of God perfectly displayed. Through the hatred, the vitriol, the jealousy, and the murderous rage against the Son of God, we see God's love and justice displayed. We, through our sin and wickedness, have rejected God as king and father, and yet he sends his son to die for us. That we who believe in him might be called children of God. The justice and wrath that we deserve are poured out on God's only son. And it is with this kind of love in mind, a love that receives jeering, that receives spits, that receives blows of fists, that's rejected, that Jesus says, just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. Wait a minute, Jesus. You didn't see how my brother spoke behind my back. You didn't see how they disrespected me. If you had known, if you had been there, if you had seen how they, how they just treated me with no regard, you wouldn't say something like that. How am I supposed to love them that way? From his cross, Jesus replies, I am a worm and not a man, scorned and rejected by all men. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. The suffering servant knows what it means to be rejected, and he shows us that in that rejection, we see love. Through that suffering, we learn what it means to really love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If someone wants to know that you're a disciple of Jesus, they don't hand you a test and say, well, here you go, let me see how much of the Bible you know. (laughs) That won't show them. They don't say, well, how many, how many of these hymns in the 82 hymnal do you know? That, that won't show them. It doesn't matter if you have signs and wonders and miracles and have visions. That doesn't tell them if you really love 
God. If you are really his disciple, you will love one another. Those who would call themselves disciples of Jesus are called to emulate the love displayed on the cross of Christ. It is a love that stares its enemies in the face and receives their jeering without fighting back. The love that Jesus shows for us is that though he was in the form of God, though he was equal to the Father in his nature, he did not cling to his rights that he had, but he laid them aside. Paul literally says he emptied himself of those rights, of his reputation that he deserved. Though in Revelation 5 we see that he and the Father are given glory and honor and power and majesty and might forever and ever, Jesus lays those aside for us. Love lays aside all its rights, all the respect that it's due for the sake of others. In the same way, we who are called children of the Father are called to take up our cross and die to ourselves Rather than insist that we are due blessings and honor, we lay these things aside for the sake of our brothers. True love means offering up all that you are, including all the rights and the honors that you may or may not rightfully deserve, so that you can love your brother. John tells us in his first epistle, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Without Jesus' willingness to offer up himself on the cross, we would not know, we would not understand what love is, and we would not be able to meet his commandment. Through the liturgy and the sacraments, the bishops, priests, deacons, and all the people of God bring forward and recall the love that God has shown us in the cross of his Son. At baptism, we are buried with him that we might rise again with him. At the altar, we receive the body that was broken for us, the blood that was poured out for us that we might become children of God. Every aspect of our worship is centered on the cross of Christ because that is how we know what love is. That is how we know how to love one another. And without a regular remembrance of this, of this love, we forget how to love one another. This is why David, in our psalm this morning, talks about one generation calling out to another the works that God has done. He says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your power. As for me, I will be talking of the glorious splendor of your majesty and of all your wondrous works, and they shall speak of the might of your marvelous acts. And I also will tell of your greatness. The remembrance of, the abund of your abundant goodness shall they proclaim, and they shall sing of your righteousness. Integral to David's understanding of what it means for us to worship God and to remember the things that he has done is the idea that generation calls out to generation that remembering what God has done and what God is doing cannot be done isolated from other generations. If I think I don't need my younger brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm a fool. And I'm just as much a fool if I think I don't need my older brothers and sisters in Christ. We need all the generations. We need older generations to faithfully pass on the faith to the younger so that they can do the same when they become the older generations. This cannot happen in isolation. Our constant recollection of his love for us is what ought to drive us to love one another. We need our elders in the faith to keep us faithful in the Lord. When I first really began to, to take hold of my faith and, and, and explore it and, and, and try, to, try to understand it, was when I was in junior high and high school, and I had people that were older than me invest in me. They saw a really weird 15-year-old trying to learn Greek and Hebrew and trying to read his Bible and trying to do all these things that 15-year-olds don't do. And they said, oh, well, okay, that's interesting. Maybe let's find a place for you to do some things, right? Try leading a small group. Try doing some music. 
Oh, here, why don't you, why don't you teach at, at, the, at the junior high night? Why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? I needed those older generations to invest in me. I needed my parents to invest in me and love me as well, but at some point, everybody gets to an age where they stop looking to their parents, right? Where do you go? If the church isn't there to support you, if the church isn't there to encourage you in your faith, where do you go? I needed those who were older than me to invest in me, to correct me when I was distant. And even still today, I need people who are older than me, who are wiser than me, who know better than I do, because guess what? I'm, I'm 31 today, still don't know everything, turns out, right? Still don't know everything, still have no idea what's going on most of the time, right? I need those who are older than me to show me the right way, to lovingly correct me, to cheer me on when I do well. And I can't even begin to tell you how much joy I've experienced seeing those who are younger than me come to their own in the faith seeing them grow and try new things. Over and over again, my, my wife and I have, have worked with junior high, high school, college for more than 10 years. It's wonderful to see them do that. It's a joy and privilege to be able to work into their lives. And my goodness, what a reminder that I need to be doing what Jesus told me to do. Because guess what? They look to you. Right? They have no idea what they're doing, right? When I was 15, I had no idea what I was reading in my Bible. I had no clue, right? I needed someone to help me. As we grow in our faith, we also pass it on to the next generation so that they too can be faithful. David continues his psalm by declaring the fruits of generations that worship together. They declare the things that God has done, that your power may be known to the children of men, even the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We declare the works that God has done in our worship so that we remind one another of the love that God has for us, but also so that we remember that we need to go out into the world that we need to proclaim the goodness of the Lord, that all may know his goodness, that all may know the glorious splendor of his kingdom. Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. But as N.T. writers want to say, his kingdom is very much for this world. Yes. God has called all generations in the family of God to proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. God's kingdom is coming. And it's coming to set right all the failures and inadequacies of our kingdoms and our governments. Unlike the kingdoms of this world that fade, David tells us that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his rule endures through all ages. Many governments of the world oppose, oppress, and enslave their peoples, but David tells us that God upholds all those who fall, that he lifts up those who are downtrodden. People still starve to death today. Just yesterday, I was, I was looking at images of, of children who are starving because of war. A lot of things that uh, you know, people tell you when you become a parent, things will change and they'll adjust or whatever. One thing that nobody warned me about was seeing kids suffering and dying. I can't look at that anymore. In God's kingdom, people don't go hungry. He gives food to those that need it in their due season. All living things are filled plenteously. Where our government is failed, God is just. He is righteous in all his ways and merciful in all his works. And God's rule and reign are coming to this earth. In verse 20, David writes, The Lord preserves all those who love him, but he will destroy all the ungodly. God makes his mercy available to all who would turn to him and repent and receive love. But those who will not, those who continue to oppress those who are innocent, those who continue to use their own power as a means to subjugate others, God will destroy. In God's kingdom, mercy and justice do not compete. They are perfectly executed. Those who love him will be saved, and those who reject his mercy will be destroyed. 
God is rich in mercy and wants all to come to a knowing faith in him. And so he calls us, all generations, to go and proclaim this good news. We, like David at the conclusion of his psalm, are to speak the praise of the Lord so that all people may give thanks to his holy name. God's kingdom is coming. And we see Paul and Barnabas proclaiming this kingdom in our passage in Acts chapter 13. They had gone to Antioch and Pisidia, which is different from Antioch in Syria, where they were first called Christians, right? So they go to Antioch and Pisidia, and they proclaim the gospel there. And we read a little excerpt of this last week, where they, where they talk about how those, those who were there that were at the synagogue, who had heard the law and the prophets, that Jesus had come to save them from things that even the law of Moses couldn't save them from. Jesus has come to save them from sin and death. And so the Jews and, and those who had converted to Ju- Judaism, the Gentile converts, were interested, and they said, well, well come back to us next week. Come back to us on the next Sabbath. And so we find them coming back on this next Sabbath. And they again proclaim the good news, and the Jews are filled with jealousy. And they begin to oppose Paul. They begin to contradict the things that he, that he and Barnabas are saying. And Paul and Barnabas do not mince words with them. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. By rejecting the gospel, they had rejected the God that loved them and showed them his love in his son. Rather than come to terms with their need for salvation, instead they dug in their heels and rebelled against God and his servants. They had been told in love to repent and receive life, and instead they turned to their own destruction. My son, who's perfect and wonderful and never does anything wrong, sometimes does some things that he's not supposed to do, right? So one of my son's favorite things is he likes to take one of his trucks and he'll go over to the dog's water bowl and he'll start splashing all the water all over the place, right? And so we'll say, you know, James, walk away. Get out of there. James, walk away. And if he still doesn't listen, then I'll walk over and I'll grab him by his hand and I'll pick him up and I'll say, walk away. What what am I saying to him? Repent, turn away from the thing that you're doing, right? And guess what? This wonderful son of mine sometimes has the audacity to throw his hands in the air and stomp his feet, right? Sometimes he cries, he loses his mind. He throws a fit. And this is exactly what we see the Jews doing in this passage. They see God as doing a new work through his son, through his apostles, and they throw a tantrum. Rather than join in with the new thing that God is doing, they say, oh, we weren't included in this. Well, God, you didn't ask us our opinion about this. God, you've just moved forward. Rather than see what God's doing, They get upset. How many times do we miss out on God wanting to use us for the things that he's called us to do? Because they're not on our terms. Has anybody asked what our terms were? As though we have perfect knowledge, right? Again, 31, I have no idea what's going on. God's not asking me what to do. Instead, God wants to partner with us. The Jews reject this, and so... Paul and Barnabas declare that the good news is coming to the Gentiles. God is love, and, God, and love is not competitive by nature. Right? God's not in competition with his creatures. If you want to try to compete, he'll show up, but guess what? There's not going to be much of a fight. God isn't competitive with us. He wants to cooperate with us. And so Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, because of your rejection, God says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see the level of participation that God's calling you to? 
I have made you a light to the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God's not competing. He wants you to cooperate. He wants to work in and through you. Far from compete with his creatures, God's son became a creature for us. He took on our nature and elevated us and made us, as St. Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. You've been called to partner with God to do the very things that you see Jesus doing. Jesus says, you see these works that I'm doing? Greater works than these will you yourselves do. Through his Holy Spirit, God wants to work through you to bring the gospel, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard the good news that that, that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but rather for the whole earth, they rejoice. They're glad, and many of them believe and receive salvation. So many people are desperate to hear that the good news is for them. They've heard the lies of the devil. They've heard the lies of the wicked one, that they're not worthy of love from anyone, least of all God. How could God love me? They've believed that that this good news is for somebody else. But God sent you, you, to go bring that good news to those people. People think that God hates them, that there's no love for them. They need to hear the good news that the gospel is for them. God has made you a light that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God's kingdom is coming soon, and when Jesus returns, he will destroy his enemies with the breath of his mouth and raise up to life those who love him. We will reign with him forever and ever, and those who oppose God and his kingdom will be destroyed. In Revelation 19, John hears a great multitude cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her on the blood of his servants. How's that for an opening acclamation? (laughs) Once more they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. No matter what your view of the book of Revelation is, no matter who do you think the the prostitute is and the beasts are and and whatever all these things are, whatever your view is, pre-trib, post-trib, no trib, whatever you're, wherever you're at. The message of this text is clear. God's judgments are just and true. When Jesus, who was appointed by God to judge heaven and earth, comes and judge, no one will say his judgments aren't fair. Rather, we'll rejoice with God that his judgments are true, that they are just, that they are good. For so many people, it's hard for them to believe that God cares about anything because they see all the injustices in the world. They see murder, they see rape, they see starvation, they see all these things, and they go, well, how could God possibly care? For many of us, we've, we've dealt with evil in our lives personally, and that is an, is an obstacle for, well, how could God love me? Usually that's what it is, right? It was certainly what it was for me. It wasn't all the, all the bad things happening out in the world. It was, well, bad things happen to me, God. Don't you love me? People need to hear the justice of God, that God will come and set things right, that that's what his kingdom is about. Yes, God is extending love and mercy now, but justice is coming too, and those who don't repent will receive justice. As St. Peter tells us, the Lord is not slack in keeping his promise to return, but he desires for all to repent, for all to come to salvation. He desires for all to be saved and rescued. But we read not only of judgment in Revelation 19, we read also of a wedding banquet. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus comes not only to bring judgment, but to make us alive, that we may be given new bodies and reign with Jesus forever and ever. At the marriage supper, at the return of Jesus, we will be made one with him in the resurrection. We will share in his nature. In that day, by his grace, we will live with him forever and ever. As John wrote, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God are indeed invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because what? Your invite has a plus one. God wants you to bring more and more people into his kingdom. Everyone is invited if they will repent and turn to Jesus in faith. Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us insists that as he did, we lay aside our rights. We lay aside anything that obscures us from actually doing the work that God has called us to do. Anything that causes us to to give pause to sharing the good news of the gospel. Comfort's not more important. Our friends, our family, our neighbors are dying in their sins. If they don't repent, they will rightly receive God's justice. But God is extending his love and his mercy now through you. You are a light to the nations. You will bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Don't wait. Don't look for someone else. As Jesus laid down his life, as Jesus laid down his rights, lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. Don't worry about what other people are going to think. You can't. They need you to go and share the gospel. They need to hear the good news. They're desperate to hear it. Be bold like Paul and Barnabas were, who didn't look at the coming persecution with fear. No, they rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and continued to proclaim the good news. Rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, let us too go and proclaim the gospel to a world that is desperately in need to hear of God's love. Amen.